Well, hello. I'd like to introduce myself. I'm Nathan Detweiler. I'm the senior pastor of this church. You may have seen me worship lead here at times, maybe even this morning. But it's good to have you with us. Facebook Live, Zoom, anyone else who's on the internet and catching this service, it's great to see you. And we're going to be continuing to stream these services even after we've transitioned to in-person services. So you're not going to miss anything. The elders want to hear from you. If you have any needs or any thoughts or anything going on, please get in touch with us. Um, and be in prayer and vigilant to be in touch with one another. So we're in First Thessalonians 3, 1 to 5. You know, certainly the Apostle Paul gets a certain reputation as being Mr. Mr. Logic, Mr. Theology, Mr. Philosophical Argument Guy. Look at the book of Romans. You know, you kind of have to almost read the whole thing in order to get the smaller parts of it, which is, which is good. Uh, but... You know, he wasn't all brains on a stick. This guy was a guy of passion. This guy was a guy of deep emotion and feeling. And uh, a lot of times people wrongly make Paul seem like a philosophy monster, which he wasn't. He wasn't at all. He, his heart is almost ripping out of his chest with desire to, to know how the, his church is doing in Thessalonica. Paul and his buddies, Silas and Timothy, had started this church. Three months uh, after they started the church, it was largely non-Jewish church. They were kicked out because of persecution of the church. So they had to flee, flee for their lives. And uh, so this church is left orphaned, if you will. And Paul actually says he felt orphaned as well as their pastor. He felt he was orphaned from his church. And they felt orphaned by him. And he was dying to know, how are they doing? And so you see, he just can't stand it. Has, that's actually what it says in the scripture. Let's read this word. 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 5. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, by the way, at great risk to Timothy probably, we sent Timothy, who was our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find someone to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. So here, there you see it. Paul says it twice. When he could stand it no longer, he had to send Timothy to see how the church was doing. That was his heart. That was his desire to see. Not just are these people converted. That was not Paul's celebration. His celebration was, are these people growing and bearing fruit for the kingdom because he loved them. He loved God. And Paul believes so strongly in this idea of heaven fused to earth, you know, the Holy Spirit filling people and continuing the ministry of Christ, that this was an uttermost um, importance to him. Something, something I think uh, would make a great t-shirt if I was able to choose these things, Christians. Did you catch what Paul said to us in this passage? Paul says we have a destiny. We're a person of destiny. And among other things, Paul says to the Thessalonians, and now to us as, as the church uh, now in our context, in our day, that we are destined for trials. Wouldn't that be a good Christian shirt? I, I am a child of destiny on the front, destined for trials in the back. <laughs> that would be quite, quite the uh, interesting shirt to, for a Christian to wear. But, uh, you know, Paul says in, in, in verses 2 and 3, um, we sent Timothy who is our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well we are destined for them. 
Destined for what? Destined for trials. Wow. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. It's turned out that way, as you well know. Paul uh, believed that trials were in the future of this young church, that were, were the destiny of this church as Christians following Jesus. And he had told them that when he was with them repeatedly, and then he, he's kind of referring back and saying, you know, in a way of encouraging them, saying, look, you're, you're experiencing trials. Um, it's just like I told you it was going to happen. And also, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, you know, that he was saying, we went through this trial as well. Paul believed that trials were in this church's destiny, that they were destined for trials. And he says, it's just like I told you. Paul is really concerned about the young church because he figures if, if he himself, Silas and Timothy, were kicked out violently and their lives were threatened, how much more were the powers and principalities going to go after this young church who were so vulnerable and were not as far along in their discipleship journey as Paul, Silas, and Timothy were? You know, were, they, were they going to be okay? And you can see Paul's concern as he repeats over and over again. When we can stand it no longer... You know, in, in both the beginning and the end, he sandwiches the whole thing between those two slices of, of raw emotion. We, we couldn't stand it any longer. I have to know. How are you doing? Have you kept the faith? Or have you faltered or fallen? Now, the good news is, spoiler alert, Timothy found the young church thriving underneath the trials it was facing, which is awesome. And we're going to look more closely at Timothy's report next week as we go through this text kind of verse by verse. But I want to look a little more closely and hone in on Paul's perspective on trials to inform our faith and our expectations of our walk of faith. Trials, the, the subject of trials, you know, why things happen to people is a huge subject. And the Bible teaches a lot about why trials come upon us. And some of it is, is clouded in mystery. And uh, simply, you know, this, the advice is believe that God is good regardless of these trials, Right? But there's lots of reasons Christians go through trials, and there's lots of biblical reasons why the Bible says we go through trials. And uh, if I was going to preach a topical sermon, I could, I could preach probably a 15-point sermon on why we go through trials. And, and that would be a great uh, teaching, I think. But I want to stick to just our text as we're going through this, and, and we'll expand as we read the Bible together. We'll expand on different reasons. Um, if you'd like to look at why Christians go through trials, just Google it and see, see, see what you can find, or just do a study in your in your Bible, the word trials in your study Bible, and see what, what it says. But we're going to look at the reasons Paul gives for why people are going through trials in this section. So though, though there are many, many biblical reasons why Christians face trials in their lives, one thing is certain about all of them. Trials are the destiny of every believer. Uh, trials are in your future as a believer of Christ. When we come to Christ, contrary to popular belief, life doesn't magically work all by itself. Um, so I think it's for people who have grown up in the church and, and heard testimonies of victory. And, and, you know, when I came to Christ, all this and everything turned around. You know, sometimes that, that, that is very true. God does redeem and God does transform things, do amazing works. But sometimes we miss out on the testimonies of someone saying, I'm going through this trial and I'm still in the middle of it. And, and I faltered here, but then I, I came back here. You know, nothing, nothing was magical. There was something that I had to do to participate in the trial or a way to think about it or a way to engage with it. And this is what I'm learning about God through this trial I'm going through or, have, or went through. We hear all these stories of victory and we miss out on the real-life gritty stories that we're all dealing with. And we feel like there's something wrong with us. Why are we having all these trials and everyone else becomes a Christian and it's magical? 
um, it seems to be totally fine. When the, the reason is because the Bible never gives us the expectation that everything's going to be perfect once we come to Christ. That's not the idea. You know, when we come to faith, it's the starting gun. It's the start of the race. Um, and it begins a journey in our lives, which the Bible calls sanctification, where we become set apart for God. We grow in our relationship with Jesus. And, and many times it's through trials that we do this. Our major points of growth are through the trials that we experience and the difficulties we experience as we hold on to faith in difficulty. Um, maybe you're feeling like you're facing a trial right now. Maybe you feel, I mean, a lot, if, I, if, if social media and conversations are any indication, you know, people feel that 2020 is a huge trial for them. And uh, for many of you at New Life, um, the, this, this whole state of affairs in 2020 is not the biggest trial in your life. The trial was, it was already happening, and this is just barely affecting you because of the trial you were already in. Struggling, having a difficult time, holding on to faith in difficulty. Um, I, I, I want to look at this idea of, of trial and, and with the expectation that it's normal to go through them and look at a couple of the reasons why Paul says we experience them. Uh, why do I want to do this? Why do I want to focus on this, this section and focus on trials? It's because of my conviction, my inner conviction, that we need an upgrade, an expansion of our understanding of why we face trials because our current deepest understanding is many times failing us. It's failing me. It's failing you. I think that most Christians could rattle off a list of good, sound, and even biblical reasons why they face trials in their lives. But here's the thing. In my experience, most of the Christians I know that I get to know well, and this has been me as well in the past, right? Secretly, deep, deep down in their heart of hearts, they might know all of the reasons we go through trials, but their default reason is they're being punished. They're being punished for something they did or something they didn't do. And they're walking and living underneath a cloak of shame. For some people... In their core, in their heart of hearts, they might know in their mind trials come for many reasons. But in their heart of hearts, when it gets down to the deepest, rawest, tenderest place, they believe they're being punished by God for something they've done, something they did, something they're continuing to do. Um, that's their only real belief in their core. And I really think the Word of God should flesh out our belief about trials a little bit more so we don't automatically go to this self-condemnation, which is people's um, default mode, if you will. Just because we see trials doesn't mean that God is punishing us, right? doesn't mean God's cut himself off from us and that we're on our own now. That's not what it means. The point of view that, that trials are because we're being punished by God is such a self-defeating thought process. It is so isolating it's so hopeless. If we are going to grow beyond this one-trick pony theology of God is punishing us, you know, we're going to have to upgrade our understanding. And we're going to have to look at our deep heart beliefs. You know, when you're going through a trial, when, you've, when you're going through an extended trial, you're asking why. At some point, is your default just God is punishing me? You know, is that your default? If a trial has... Uh, come upon you because God is punishing you, then because of God's character, you would have a very good idea as to why that was happening. It wouldn't be this amorphous, 
uh, thing that you can't put your finger on. You know, it would be something simple that you would confess to Jesus, be covered in the blood, and be set free and never be in shame if you were being punished for something you did. Um, Jesus' blood is enough to expunge any sin from our lives. And whenever we feel that we are under discipline from God in some way, and it's, and it's for punishment, it's always going to be very clear to us what, what the reason is. And it's always going to be very simple to come to Jesus, put it under the blood, no matter how great or small the sin is, it's going to be no problem for God to take care of that. We're not going to walk in shame. No one is ever hopelessly stuck in a lifelong punishment from God where God's condemnation rests on them no matter how severe their sin was, whether it was large or small. You're, no one is destined to be hopelessly stuck in a lifelong punishment from God. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, that's, that's almost like on the level of superstition. Our God always is clear. Our God always offers a redemptive opportunity in all of the trials we face in life. And trials don't come upon us just because we're being punished by God. Um, so you have to ask yourself, do I secretly believe I'm being punished by God most of the time deep in my heart? That's a good question. It's probably not the case at all. Even in a passage such as Hebrews 12, 4-7, it says God disciplines those he loves and accepts as his children. And even in this passage, the word discipline does not mean punish. You know, it means, you know, the Greek is, is like to, to come alongside, to grow like a father would, like disciplining someone to run a race, right? Um, we, we read punish into that, but it says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have, have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father, addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, when he says you were wrong, Right? Because the Lord's discipline is for the one he loves. And he chastens, he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. It's, even in this passage where it does talk about chastening, almost like a punishing word, it's, 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 it's saying to you that when you are being disciplined by God, it's evidence of your true sonship. Like a good father is interested in his children and their flourishing and their growth. God is interested in our, our flourishing and growth. God is not out, to, out for his pound of flesh. God is not. In Christ, we've been reconciled to God. And it says in Romans, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yet, in the meantime, though we are covered in the blood, God is guiding. He wants to intimately, according to this passage in Hebrews, and in our passage today, he wants to grow and come alongside and discipline the one he loves because they're his child. Um... And it says in Hebrews, when you face hardship of any kind, what does it say? It says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. When we, in, when we have difficulty, when we have trials in life, when we have hardship, we're not to look at it as God is punishing me, I'm under a cloud of condemnation. We're, we're, to, we're not to, to think of it that way in such a self-defeating way. We're to think to ourselves, you know, God is, um, is disciplining me. He's growing me. It's an opportunity to grow. Because he's a loving father. This is, it says, God is treating you as his children. You know, this is, it's very hard. I'm trying to hammer past your brain into your heart right now. That's what I'm trying to do as your pastor. I'm trying to hammer past your brain into your heart. I know you know theology, but in your heart of hearts, what do you really believe about God as father? That's the question here today. And even when God punishes his children, it's clear, it's for their good, it's to grow them. But, in our passage today, the trials that come upon these people are not because of anything they've done. They're not being punished at all. 
But if you are the type of Christian that constantly just believes God is punishing you, despite the fact that you've repented, despite the fact that you've confessed your sin, uh, then you are living underneath a false condemnation. It's as, as simple as that. It's a false condemnation. It's not the truth. It's not God's heart towards you. If you are that person that, that did something in high school, in college, in your first marriage, in your third marriage, with your kid, whatever it was, whatever that you did, you are not destined to live underneath the condemnation of an angry God. You know, we live under a friendly sky through Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross, then you have to believe that God's love and justice met when Jesus died on the cross. He saw the need that humanity had for a covering, and God himself gave God's life and shed God's blood to cover our sin. That's love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself, gave his son as a sacrifice for sin. God is not angry. God is not brooding and waiting to strike you with a bolt of lightning. When you're being disciplined, do not, when you are going through a trial, do not default to one of many, many possibilities and one that's very often off balance. Default to the truth of who God is. So I'm, ex- I'm preaching out of my experience as a human, as a pastor, the stories I hear. I just believe a lot of people believe God's punishing them. That's, all I, that's what I think. And maybe you are one of those people. So this morning, as we look at this text, though, in particular, I want, I want to expand our view of trials and see some of the reasons, a couple of the reasons that we do face trials. This young church had not done anything to become chastened or punished. They were simply being uh, persecuted. And the first reason Paul gives for trials is actually found in last week's passage, and I put it in my pocket and saved it for today, and also found in this passage as well. And it's often overlooked by Christians, even though it's addressed constantly in the Bible. Um, so 1 Thessalonians 2.18, something I didn't address in my sermon last week, Paul says, we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. Paul had a trial. He was, he was ripped from these people, and he was kept away from these people, and he attributes that to Satan, that trial. Um, Satan is a word that means adversary, one who opposes another in purpose or act. It's a name given to the prince, the highest ruler of the evil spirits in the Bible. He gets in people's way and stops even amazing, praying Christians like Paul from doing what God is seemingly calling them to do. There's a lot that's said about Satan in the Bible. And if we ignore it, then we're ignoring one of the reasons that trials come upon Christians at times. You know, for Paul, he said, Satan blocked our way. And then later on in our passage today in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, he says, For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you, and their labors might have been in vain. So for Paul, Satan blocked his way earlier in 2.18. And then in uh, 3, 5, he says that he was concerned the tempter had tempted them, and their labors, and, and all of the work that he'd done to build that church had been in vain. Um, the tempter, of course, is implicitly Satan. In a bad sense, in this word tempter in the Greek, to test one maliciously, to craftily put to proof um, feelings or judgments, to test one's faith, to solicit, to sin, to tempt the temptations of the devil. This is what this word means in the Greek. And Paul identifies Satan 
or the tempter as an instigator of some significant trials in his life and in the life of the church. And part of the evil that, uh, that Paul is referring to when he says Satan, if you really look at these words and study them, here I am preaching, preaching about it now, um, he is talking about the powers and principalities of darkness that are under the rule of Satan. So he's, he's, he, he personifies wicked society and the, and the world and all the stuff that's coming down and, and you know, in his case, uh, coming to murder Christians um, in his context. And he's saying this is the work of Satan. Behind all of this is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, as the Bible calls him. And so for that reason, you know, many times in our world today, there's systemic evil in our world today that we could rightly say this is satanic. This thing we're looking at in our world, it's not just bad, it's evil. It's come from the enemy. This is not of God. Um, and so we can talk, we can speak to those things because we are Christians and because we have a, f- a firm foot to stand on. We can speak to the institutions in our world that are not functioning in the way that God's kingdom is supposed to function. And we can say enough. Um, but, but Paul is talking about Satan blocking him. That's the people under Satan's control. And then he talks about the tempter, Satan, perhaps a demons that could be messing with this young church. And if we're going to, if we're going to talk about this topic, I just wanted, wanted to pull it out. Uh, Satan is referred to in most of the major sections of the New Testament. It's there. One of the problems we have is that for some reason in our world, uh, Christians are not comfortable with this. It just seems like a silly thing because we've watched Hanna-Barbera cartoons and you know, we've seen the, the hairy devil and tapping his foot and the devil on the shoulder and all that from the cartoons. We've seen it in popular movies and all, all these kind of things. That does not negate the reality. Satan is not that cartoon. Satan is much more sinister than that. Um, but biblically... You know, Satan is, ref- is referred to in most of the sections of the New Testament. In, in this context, he blocked Paul from coming to see the people through, through the people that were under his control. And he also tempted, was a tempter that could cause the church to give up on God. But, but biblically, Satan is above all the evil spirits in the world. And in the Bible, he is called, in Ephesians 2, shockingly, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is an allusion to earth. Satan has great power on the earth. And Satan has influence. And Satan, and there's people in government that are in the pocket of Satan. Behind the powers and principalities of our world, there is evil behind those things many times. And so we, we see evil infest society and we see injustice in society. And behind it all, we believe biblically, this is the Satan. Satan and his people and demons are always opposed to God and opposed to man's best interests. They're opposed to God's destiny for people. In uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says that the thorn on the flesh was from Satan. In Mark 4, it may, maybe you're a Jesus fan and you're like, you know, I believe in Jesus. The rest of the Bible I have trouble with, but Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus taught about Satan. In the parables of the sower and the seed, Satan, the enemy, took away the seed in Mark 4, uh, Matthew 13. He, the devil sows evil seed in the world. Jesus explicitly says this in Matthew 13. Um, it's, it's said in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that Satan is called the god of this world, little g god of this world. He blinds the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the truth of who God is. Satan tempted Jesus in the desert and continually throughout his ministry. He tempted his followers. It was Satan who caused Judas to betray Christ. And so if, if, if that's what Satan did with Jesus and with his followers and with Jesus, I mean, he's also doing that with you, you know. 
either demonic, demons, or Satan, he, there is a chance that he is also messing with you. And you just don't know it because you, you don't think about it. You think, maybe you think it's an antiquated concept, but it's, it's there. And if you don't see it, then you're going to be a, a casualty, right? But, but Satan keeps us from being productive for the kingdom, keeps us from bearing fruit. He tries to keep us in a shame spiral where we just assume that God's angry at us and punishing us and we, we kind of retreat into a corner. He tries to take advantage of faithful people. He tries to bring about injustice and incite violence and you know, all the things in our world that are ugly, these are the things that delight him. The, the, they're hellish. So the Bible says, you are in warfare. You are, whether you know it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, there is powers and principalities of darkness in this world. There is someone trying to hinder you. There's someone trying to shake your faith and deceive you and, and knock you off the path of Christ. And uh, his biggest plan is to make people think he's a joke or a myth or just make people laugh and make, make him a joke and you know, not acknowledge that he exists and then you're already halfway there. And his other trick is just to terrify people and to ruin people's lives and to ruin the lives of believers and to make believers fall from the faith. But we, we, we can believe in Satan and we, and we can um, be people that are not terrified of him because greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. We just need to be aware. We are, well, the Bible says, do not be unaware of his schemes. He is trying to wreck you. You know, he wants to. But greater is God than Satan. For the Christian that keeps these things in perspective and is aware of them, it can really drain a lot of the shame out of your life because some of the things that you do and some of the things that you, um, some of the trials you've been through, you need to pray because some of them can be satanically influenced. You just need to pray over your family, pray over yourself, pray over your church because Satan is trying to seek, kill, and destroy Christians and destroy the work of God. That's what he's doing. So, when it says in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so that you will not fall prey to this evil, you know, it's serious. Like, really think about putting on the armor of God. That's why I'm trying to equip you with the reasons Christians go through trials, to kind of expand you out of your shame place and bring you into a real relationship with God uh, so that you can get in the fight, you know what I'm saying? Instead of just being a casualty and being run over and feeling just like you're a terrible Christian, a terrible person, you'll never measure up. These are all the things Satan wants to do. And, um, he wants to take away your fruitfulness. He wants you to fight with people. He wants you to, to demon, demonize, you know, no pun intended, humans. He wants, to, uh, he wants you to fight against flesh and blood. He wants you to fight against flesh and blood. He wants you to, to hate certain people and to fight certain people. But really, it says in the Bible, our battle is not against flesh and blood. This is important, especially when you're looking at politics and all these different things. Your battle is not against these people. It's about the, the battle is against the powers and principalities behind those people. And part of our spiritual battle is prayer. Part of our spiritual battle is some sort of activism sometimes and coming against these things literally that are um, offensive to God. But make no mistake, there's both a spiritual and a physical manifestation in our world. Powers and principalities of darkness, the devil, demons, it's all real. And uh, we need to fight in this battle with the whole armor of God. And uh, we need to work for the kingdom of God in the midst of a world with a lot of injustice. And right from, from the human heart all the way to the world, it's, it, there's stuff happening. But you know, you, Satan wants you to fight against people. 
That's the point. He wants you to fight against your wife. He wants you to fight against your husband. He wants you to fight against your children. He wants you to fight against your church family. He wants to bite and devour our fellowship and take away our unity. He wants us to mistrust each other. He wants us to think that we have to assign wrong motives to each other. He wants us to think certain things about each other whenever we see each other and then have those become deeply held beliefs about each other. He wants us, in short, to take the cross of Christ and drain it of its power of reconciliation and grace. He wants us to all become the judge and jury and executioner of each other. That's what he wants to do. From your household to your church to this world, Satan is just dying to do this stuff. And it seems good, it seems right to us, but the battle is not against flesh and blood. We need to fight together against the real enemy, and we need to put on the full armor of God, and we need to use the tools God's given us of forgiveness, reconciliation, and making peace with one another through the blood of Jesus, not because any of us deserve to be forgiven or be at peace with each other, but because God has forgiven us, and we must reflect that to one another. So, fight against people. You know, Satan says, your battle is against the flesh, Satan says. And God says, no, it's not flesh and blood. Satan's biggest trick is that he doesn't exist, that this stuff isn't real, it's just a fairy tale. His second trick is to make people terrified of him. His third trick is to get us to fight against one another, instead of against the real evil, right? So have you considered that your, your battle, your trial that you're going through might not be against flesh and blood, but instead is a battle with Satan and demons and evil that you have not believed exists strongly enough. And maybe you need to, instead of fighting, you need to pray and put on the full armor of God, whatever that means, right? Go to Ephesians 6 and think about each piece of that armor. Think about a different kind of struggle than you've been having. Instead of fighting with somebody, pray with them. You know, be reconciled. Figure it out. Because you need to fight together this battle, not, not be separated. Our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul prayed that he could get to see the Thessalonians. Satan blocked him. Paul was concerned about the Thessalonians because they might be tempted to lose the faith. These things are all reasons we should be in prayer. Also remembering the greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So this is an expanse of your theology of trials. It's not just that you, it's not you being punished by an angry God all the time. You know, that's not what it's about. Trials come as a result of Satan and demonic influences and people who are unwittingly being used by Satan, such as in governments, powers, authority systems, households, wherever you see any kind of structure that's evil and perpetuating evil, you know, Satan is using these people unwittingly. Your battle's not against those people. It's against what's behind it. So read the rest of Ephesians. Read the rest of Ephesians 6. Open your mind. Open your eyes. Find out what it means to put on the full armor of God. Um, stop fighting with people like your spouse, your friends, your kids, your church, and just realize that this is much bigger. And we all need to be vigilant and prayerful for one another because uh, we should be concerned that each other could be pulled off and, and, and taken out. We need to love each other and realize that we're not above being taken out ourselves, right? Put on the full armor of God. So that, that's one element, and that's a big one to take hold of. I don't think I've ever preached so long on Satan and demon stuff. I'm preaching on it because I think it's important. It's in our text. And Paul and, and Jesus and every Christian um, has believed this. And um, it's important to take hold of, right? So another reason, the, the second reason that, that 
trials come up besides just demonic and satanic reasons, which is the big one, according to today's passage, is simply as a test of faith. Okay? So sometimes trials are allowed into our lives as a test of our faith. Let's see what Paul says to Timothy that he wants him to check on. In the midst of trials, it says in verse 5, For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you, their labors might have been in vain. Paul was looking at this thing as a test of faith. Paul was concerned that Satan, demons, and systems in the government controlled by Satan were going to cause God's people to lose their faith. And the trial was really for the people's faith. But as Paul said, this was a trial of their faith. It didn't have to be the end of their faith. It was just a trial. When people look at trials, um, believing one-dimensionally that God's punishing them, they forget the truth of Hebrews 12 that we talked about earlier. The Lord's discipline is meant to show you that you are his child. He accepts you as his son or daughter. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. A good father doesn't just punish his kids. He disciplines them, which means, again, to train them, to instruct them, to teach them, to cause a person to learn who needs to learn. That's what a good father does. It's not punishment. The word is discipline, right? God's always trying to get us to learn and grow. And God, it's amazing. God is focused on, on your growth as a Christian while holding everything else together. God is amazing. He's always trying to get you to learn, trying to get you to grow. It's his nature. He allows trials to accomplish this at times. If you are a parent, um, even, if, even, even poor parents that are not very good, there's something in them that wants their child to grow, to do, to do better than they did perhaps. This impulse is, is reflected from God himself. This is God's impulse. He's the original nurturing force of the universe. Um, he, he's always trying to get his children, you and me, to grow and to learn. And he allows trials at times to accomplish this in our lives. So no matter what the trial is, Hebrews says we are to endure them as gifts from the Lord intended for our growth. Becoming a Christian, again, is the starting gun of the race. Sanctification is the goal. Growing into your faith over the course of your lifetime. I heard this saying, how do you measure a sailor? In storms? Or in fair weather? You measure a sailor in storms. How does he get through the storm? Anyone can float a boat in fair weather. How do you judge a pilot? On their landing or on their forced landing, right? If a pilot can land a plane, you know, because of emergency, you know that's a really good pilot. It shows what you're made of um, when you're able to, to do, to perform in difficult trial circumstances. You know, how do you measure a Christian? You measure a Christian by how they express faith, hope, and love in the midst of trial, right? It's easy to be, you know, a, a kind of a hippie concept of, Love everybody, man. This is cool. Yeah, it's awesome. But when, but when, but when it comes to doing that in 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 suffering in some way, loving somebody till it hurts, if you will, that's something that really shows who the real Christians are, and who is bearing fruit. When um, when a person goes through a trial and they're still able to be a, to act as a Christian in the midst of that trial, to still uh, be gracious to still be patient, to still express the fruit of the Spirit. This is the proof in the pudding, right? It's like 
A sailor is judged by how they do in a storm. A pilot's judged on how they land uh, in an emergency situation. A Christian is, is proven, is shown to be what, what they are, a follower of Jesus, by how they do in very difficult circumstances. And our, our example and model of this is Jesus Christ, who in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he knew he was going to die, oh, we'll, we'll go to the Last Supper. Before he knew he was going to die, he, he washed his disciples' feet. He wasn't losing it or be, being cranky and being you know, the way that I can be when I'm under stress and trial. Jesus exemplified servanthood in his most difficult moment, washing the disciples' feet, even as his betrayer was sitting there at dinner with them. Later on, Jesus was in Gethsemane, right before he was taken away by the guards, right in the garden of Gethsemane. Under all this pressure, you know, his life, his mission, everything, Father, if you are able, take this cup from me. I mean, it was a terrifying moment in his life. He had the, the, the mindset, I need to get some people to pray for me. I'm going through a trial. He asked his disciples to stay awake with him. They fell asleep, you know. But his impulse was, proof is in the pudding, right? In his greatest trials, he served in self-giving love, even to his enemies. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he, realizing he needed strength outside of himself, rallied the troops and got his disciples to pray for him. Under duress, on the cross as he was dying, he made sure his mother was going to be taken care of by one of his disciples, and he saved the thief next to him that, uh, that asked for Jesus to save him and said, you will be with me in paradise. These are the things he did when he was dying. Okay, I, don't, I know that none of us is Jesus, but we're supposed to be like Jesus. So um, when you are under duress, when you're going through a trial, sickness, joblessness, pandemic, whatever it might be, the proof is in the pudding. You know, how do you do in those circumstances? And God, this is not condemnation. This is God um, pointing out you know, where are you really at in your faith? I think I'm being challenged in that definitely to, to, to be the person that God's calling me to be in every circumstance and to be steadfast because trials come and go. And uh, the only thing that's sure about trials is that they will always be a part of your life. They're, they're your destiny until Jesus comes back or you die and, and face him. And you're made, you're, you know as you're made, you know perfectly, even as he knows perfectly and all those things. Until then, God is training us. And we need to endure hardship as a, as a God training us, teaching us so we might learn, treating us, in short, as, as a good father would treat his children, as a good parent would treat his children. Some trials come from Satan. They need to be fought spiritually with prayer and with truth, with repentance and faith, right? These are things we know we can do. The blood of Christ, in short. All trials are allowed by God. All trials should be endured and weathered so that the woman or man of God might become fully equipped for every good work and, and if you will, battle ready. So Paul, Paul, he just can't help himself. He has to send Timothy to check on the faith of the Thessalonian church. He's concerned. He knows that Satan is tempting them and uh, trying to get them to leave their faith. He's concerned and worried that their faith might perish, that they might misunderstand what's actually going on and lose their faith. And he's encouraged to see that the young church understands God's grace enough to know that they aren't being punished, but instead trained and developed by a loving God who wants to use them and make them more effective as his people. And you and I need the same thing. We need the same perspective shift. We need to widen our view of why we go through trials so we do not, so we do not lose heart. You know? So we do not lose heart. I think another thing that Paul has encouraged is that the Thessalonian church has not begun to view each other as the enemy or even the people oppressing them, but really they're looking to fight the real power behind their oppression 
and that is Satan. They're fighting in prayer. So look into your heart of hearts this morning, your deepest heart, not your mind, but what you really believe. Are you the type of person that feels that God's constantly punishing you, you're under condemnation, whenever anything in life becomes difficult? Are you the kind of person that accidentally fights people all the time instead of the powers and principalities of darkness? Um, I want you to know this morning that God wants to use the trials in your life, regardless of why or how they came upon you, and in our life as a church to grow us and develop us, develop us because God has forgiven and freed us to become people who overcome in the midst of a hostile and difficult environment of sickness, sin, death, war. You name it, the, stuff, the results of the fall. God has, is training us to be overcomers in a difficult circumstance. And he promises that we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. What does that mean? Well, the blood of Jesus shed for us where we can repent of our sin, forgive others. You know, um, we can pray put on the full armor of God, and we can speak about the great things that God has done for us and what he is helping us through. We can share the good and the bad. <clears throat> the star of the story is Jesus, right? So reassess your thoughts. Look into your heart of hearts. Reassess your thoughts about your life circumstances and be freed from the condemnation that Jesus died to remove from your head. This is not your destiny to live with this feeling that you, you're irrevocably being punished by God forever. Uh, your destiny is to see God in a different way as a loving father who's trying to train, trying to teach you, trying to come alongside you and grow you into um, the character of his son so that in very difficult circumstances you exemplify the kingdom. Even in the midst of complete societal upheaval, you are a different type of person with a different kind of perspective and able to bring something into a situation that's literally out of this world because it's come from, from God. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. He is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus said, come to me. And Jesus didn't turn anyone away who came to him. So join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would uh, grow in our understanding. I pray that for those who are in bondage to condemnation, for those who believe that every trial is a sign of, you, of how you do not love them and how they are doomed, that you would, you would deliver them from that mindset. That we would see you as you are a loving Father who is trying to come alongside us and trying to grow us through the trials we face. For those who are facing extreme trials right now, God, in their households, in their health, in their just being a part of the world as it is right now, Lord, I pray for your grace. And I do not, Lord, in my mind and heart, I do not minimize the suffering and trouble that people are going through. I pray that you would strengthen everybody who is hearing my voice right now in the midst of their trial, that you give them eyes to see the true enemy, not the flesh and blood, but the true enemy behind it all, to pray, to engage, Lord, not to get caught up in the demonic, satanic uh, games, that we would be a people of light, people of Christ, um, who view every opportunity, everything as an opportunity, everything as an arena to test the faith and to prove the faith that we have and not for our good, not for our own self, but for the sake of the world and for Christ's sake as well, Lord. Let the cross not be drained of its power by us because we get, get stuck in this world system in such a way that we can't be effective. Let us be salt and light. Let us be a city on the hill that cannot be hidden. Let us, let us fight with the spiritual weapons you've given us of prayer, of truth, 
let us see behind the institutions. They're, they're evil in our world. That there is a spiritual battle and there is also something we can do to work for your kingdom in this world. We lift all of these things up in Jesus' name and thankful that you have called us to simply come to you.